0: Best selling author, personal trainer, and your host of Give Me Strength. What makes a strong person to you? Could it be the kilograms on your deadlift, the miles you're able to run, or is it as simple as saying how you feel? An inner feeling of strength that's there regardless of your fitness abilities. Each week, I'll be looking into this concept, asking extraordinary women about their ever evolving relationship with exercise and how their experiences have shaped who they are today. Together we'll discuss the positives of living a stronger life both physically and mentally in the hope that we can inspire you to do the same. Welcome to Give Me Strength. My guest this week is a woman who is a change maker, celebrated basketball player, and most recently announced ambassador for the global brand Adidas. But she is far more than just a sports star. She is, put simply, an incredible woman who has lobbied a global campaign to overturn the ban of the hijab in basketball. She supported development in young people in Tanzania, nurtured a successful acting career, and found her feet as a spoken word poet. Growing up in Bradford, Yorkshire, Asma El-Badawi felt that she had no relatable role models in popular culture. Adamant on changing this, she describes how she set out to be the change she wished to see in the world and cites this as a primary motivation which fuels her obsession with achieving her very best in whatever she turns her hand to. Of the many women that I've had the pleasure of coming across in my career, Asma is up there with one of the most inspiring, and I am so honoured to have her with me today on Give Me Strength. So, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. It was amazing. (laughs) (laughs) So, was anyone in your family sporty? Is that where your initial interests kind of came from, or or was it something that was completely new to you? So, I think my dad loved football a lot, and I
1: have an older brother who loved football a lot, and he still does. So... Yeah, it was the same. Like we'd play in the park with them at school. I'd play, so they really encouraged it in the
0: house. Yeah, and did you watch sport growing up as well? Because that's I think something like I never watched sport growing up. No, I never watched it, and I was like, terrible at sport. Yeah. But yeah, I, I just I didn't. It never resonated with me until much later in life. So I don't know whether you had an affinity to it early on or whether
1: no, no. I just enjoyed playing it, and mm. I felt like I was at home.
0: Growing up in Bradford, you've spoken about how you felt that you sort of had no role models to aspire to. Can you tell me how you feel like that impacted you early on? I think the fact that I didn't see
1: anyone who looked like me, and especially on TV at the time, just made me think like Muslim women were not allowed to play sports. Like it was forbidden maybe in the religion or something. And sometimes when you see people who look like you, it just gives you permission to also do the things that they're doing Mm -hmm. so when it came to sports I just didn't see no one that looked like me Mm -hmm. so I was just like that's a no-go zone for Mm me.
0: And even if it's like a subconscious thing like that you you don't even realise but I guess subconsciously you might just be like oh that's not something that I would ever aim or aspire for because there's no one like me doing that but with your school experience was it there that you really got into sport then was that where you kind of your passion for it started? (laughs) In my childhood during like First school, yeah, like I played
1: a lot of sports. Mm-hmm. I did all the after school classes mm-hmm. that involved sports. I was in them and I really enjoyed that. With high school, it was a bit different. It was like my mom decided to put me in a faith school and she felt like that would be great for me, for my development as a young Muslim girl. But I felt like it actually hindered me quite a lot. I was from a community that was very different to the community of the majority of the girls who went to the school because I'm African Muslim and we have a lot of difference in our culture and I think that I was so active in the sports side of things and I was active in the arts and those were the things that I kept getting told I should stop doing or I should stop giving them so much attention because they're not going to do anything for me in my life.
0: Yeah that's really interesting that must have felt really hard I guess when the things that you're good at as well you know as a kid when you're growing up I was really good at musical theatre and that Mm. was what I really wanted to do but my school was like no you know you don't don't go away and do like acting and prancing around on a stage you Mm. need to go and get a proper degree and I guess that must have been really stifling for you at the time. Yeah it was like really awkward because I just didn't understand
1: why those things were not seen as something great to do and especially when Mm. you enjoy them and to be honest I never even considered having them in my future. Like, it was just something that I really enjoyed doing. Yeah. and I was just planning to just do until I just couldn't do them of anymore. Course.
0: And do you feel like your confidence was therefore affected? Because I guess if those are the things that you're excelling at and you enjoy and you're being told not to do them, I guess, were you as academic or did you find that a real struggle? And did that mean that your confidence was also affected?
1: I felt like I was... I felt right in the average, if that makes mm. sense. But it felt like, to the teachers, I was failing and I wasn't but I think a lot of that was because my mum was also a teacher in my school mm. so it was almost like I was expected to be this perfect student oh, gosh. at like 11, 12, 13 whatever and I just wanted to laugh and, and talk in the class and a lot of the times it, it was sort of pointed out that you know what just because your mom's a teacher you can't you can't do that. And it was just like, no, I'm a teenager. That's why I'm talking. Ah. Like, there's there's no correlation between the two. So, yeah, I, I felt like a lot of pressure. And mm. on top of that, I was always in trouble. Like, I was literally, <gasps> like, always, oh, no, always, always in trouble. That. Yeah, it's so funny because <laughs> when I look back now, I'm like, I used to fight a lot. But I think I was just so frustrated about the way I was being told constantly like you're gonna fail I was dyslexic and I didn't even know at the time and it was just like I was finding certain things in my academic studies like really difficult like the spelling and all this kind of things and I was expected to just understand it
0: and on top of that I was expected to be perfect because I was a teacher's Mm. daughter and so I just lashed out you, you say you weren't particularly academic, but you have gone on to do some amazing things with your, within academia in that you have a degree in photography and also then a master's as well. So yeah. how did you lead up to that and, and where did sport kind of come into it as well? So I I left school.
1: I went to a completely different one because I wanted a new environment and a place where I thought I could grow. And the subjects that I took were all arts and like sociology, psychology, those kind of studies. Mm that school was just different because they kept encouraging me to pursue what it is that I wanted to pursue it was completely different culture to the school that I had been in to be honest I always knew I had to go to university because both my parents did but I didn't know what I was going to study and for a long time I thought I was going to do architecture and then I think just the day before the UCAS I sort of calmed my down and I was just like listen I'm, I'm not into maths it's not my thing. <laughs> I want to do passion. And he was just like, let's sit down and discuss <laughs> it. <laughs> and then we both agreed to look at different universities and see what courses were available. And there was an art and design course at Sunderland University. And my dad and I both agreed that that course looked really good for mm-hmm. me. So, yeah, so I did my first year foundation year and I really enjoyed it. And then at some point we did a a photography workshop and they literally asked us like to go out with these little disposable cameras and come back at the end of the day with pictures no brief nothing and i came back with these pictures of me just walking around town with my hijab on and just having fun and the next day i put them up on the wall and i just sort of expressed that you know i'm a muslim girl and I feel like a lot of people say so much things about people who look like me or are part of my faith. And actually, I've been able to do everything that normal people do. Like, I go out, I do things, I play sports. I And as soon as that happened, my tutor just came. She, like, pulled me to the side and she was just like, we wanted to specialise in photography and video. And I was just like, yeah, no, yeah. we've had this discussion <laughs> before with my dad. <laughs> but they convinced me, like, it took about three months and they just showed me that look you can tell stories and it seems that you're good at that and if you go down a fashion route you're not going to be able to do that anymore and Mm -hmm. I absolutely love those three years Mm -hmm. I got to talk about so many things like about my identity as a Sudanese girl living in UK as like skin bleaching in the like African community Mm -hmm. and then I just decided like I didn't want to stop there and then I applied for a master's and thankfully I got unconditional offer so I was just like wow. oh.
0: that's amazing <laughs> yeah and do you know what it sounds like is that like all it takes is for someone to just believe in you exactly and I've had that in my like in my life you know there's been times where you just feel as though you're sort of banging your head against the wall and you're so frustrated because it feels like you're going nowhere and all it takes sometimes is just for someone to say I believe in you and you can do this and then suddenly it feels like your your wings are like expanding yeah. and you can just take off and it sounds like that's what happened with you so please do tell me where did basketball come into this because I'm dying to know at what point you started
1: playing so I stopped playing sports altogether for two years my first two years of university Mm -hmm. and then at some point I just felt really really down I felt like something was missing in my life that I didn't know what it was Mm -hmm. and then I realized it was sports because I'd been playing it like my whole entire life and so I, I asked around and stuff and then I ended up joining the basketball team but I literally knew nothing Like I didn't know about the three second rule I didn't know that there was five players that played on the court I literally knew nothing but I was just eager to learn I remember I went to Serbia for a camp like over the Christmas holidays that like I paid for myself because Mm. I really really wanted to get good at this sport Mm. and I felt like it was the first sport that really really challenged me because it's like mentally and physically it's different it's Mm. different to my art things because with my art you need to be a bit vulnerable and Mm. express yourself with that it's like no take the ball Mm. get it to the basket right (laughs) if you get shoved you shove back (laughs) right and I remember after my first year of playing I just called my dad and and I said to him, I really want to talk to you when I come back to Bradford. And I sat down with him and I just expressed myself. I just said, look, I don't see myself not playing sports again like I did it for a bit and I didn't enjoy it and Mm. he was just like we don't even know why you stopped me and your mom had a conversation about it and we were wondering why you even stopped yeah and all of this was happening without me being aware Mm. and he encouraged me so much he was the one that was like listen go get your coaching qualifications go do something with this he was like you're Sudanese you know you might be able to inspire young Sudanese girls in the future maybe play for Sudan or whatever and I, I just went along with it
0: Amazing. With basketball, obviously, it's a team sport. Did you find that you got that sense of community and that sense of belonging, I guess? Because you've said with your photography, it's, it's, it's very much kind of a lone ranger thing. Mm. You go out on your own, you're very at one with your camera. But I guess basketball is completely the opposite. It's all about the team environment. Did you find that you've you kind of got that sense of, I really belong here, and these people are very inviting and giving me that feeling of belonging?
1: I think there was times where I did and times where I didn't. Okay. Because... Within the basketball culture, and especially at university level, I feel like there's a lot of politics. I felt like coaches have preferences and with our university specifically, there were people who were playing that shouldn't have been playing anymore. It's made me like a fairer coach because now I know like you can't play someone who doesn't come to trainings, for example. It's not fair, even if they're the best player on the team Mm. and if they're not on the team and they're not legally allowed to play then they shouldn't be there because mm-hmm. someone else is
0: suffering because of mm-hmm. that I think that sense of equality is definitely something and fairness that definitely comes and de- and is definitely learnt from team sports that you know you've got to show up and you've got to play together and if you're yeah. not playing as a team you know I doesn't appear in team is like one of my favourite sayings there's no <laughs> I in team or whatever yeah. the saying is and it's so true you know if you're not showing up and you're not putting in the hard work why should you yeah. deserve a space in, in the but team I think there were times where I actually did have the team feeling in the sense that like when I
1: moved teams especially suddenly I was around girls where they cared about the sport more than anything Mm. they cared about you developing Mm. as a player there was girls I used to play against when I was at uni that are now my like one of my closest friends Mm. because we we train together all the time and everything and there was a point where a lot of the girls who don't go out drinking and couldn't go to the social that involved drinking we all got together and we were sort of like guys can we do something where we
0: can feel like we belong of and course. be part of the team because i didn't even think of that obviously a yeah. huge part of university <laughs> is that whole social side yeah, of yeah. the sport but where did you find yourself kind of fitting in with that, and were people very inclusive, or was it kind of like an us and them feeling so we we basically just like spoke out and expressed that we wanted socials that
1: didn't include drinking, no drinking until after ten o'clock, and that allowed the girls who are like me that don't want to be part of mm. all of that to go back and mm.
0: and and it was it was great like Amazing. Sometimes you just need to say it. Of course, yeah, and that's, the, that's <laughs> yeah. the thing. If you never say, and if you don't ask, you don't know. So it's amazing that you came to that kind of that decision. So prior to overturning the ban of the hijab in basketball, many Muslim women were having to give up on the sport at a professional level. What was your motivation to head up this incredible campaign to overturn the ban, and what gave you the strength to go about achieving it?
1: So I felt like when I was invited to be part of the campaign by indira who was actually a professional basketball player and then as soon as she started wearing the hijab Mm. she was no longer allowed to play um so she invited me to be part of it and everything and to be honest i didn't even have to think about it i just knew like straight away that i wanted to be part of this Mm. campaign because i didn't see anyone that looked like me and i suddenly realized why like everything made sense Mm. why i never wanted to pursue any sport professionally Mm. but like it just made sense like why I wasn't seeing people on the TV that looked like me it wasn't because they were not allowed to in terms of religion and their Mm. faith it was because there was an actual ban that didn't allow them to progress and I feel like with sports from a very young age certain sports it requires you to play under 20s under 16 under 14 etc mm. and if you're not allowed to do that because of a ban it means you're never going to progress mm. to be seen on mm. national stages and on TV so as soon as i saw that i was just like wow i have to be part of this movement and make sure that the next girl who
0: wants to play professionally doesn't turn up and someone says no to her mm. and i think what you've said there is like visibility is key you need to be seeing people that are like you doing what you're doing in order to feel as though there is that level of aspiration to achieve that and and they can do it too it's yeah. that kind of if you can do it so can i exactly feeling yeah. so the petition received over 137,000 signatures which is amazing and of course it was successful but do you still think we have a long way to go in terms of creating an equal playing field in sports for men and women mm. I think that a lot of
1: the things that Muslim women want are very similar to what some women in our communities also want. Um, for example, like not all girls are comfortable showing off their whole body. Like, mm-hmm. and then there's like leotards and like swimming costumes that some girls are going to stop swimming because they don't feel comfortable mm. wearing um, the swimming costumes. So I feel like there just needs to be alternative uniforms that allow people of all faiths and all confidence levels
0: to be able to still participate in the sport. Mm -hmm. Something that I think is really interesting is I found some stats from 2007 that showed that only 12.5% of Asian women do enough exercise each week. Mm. And clearly we have come some way since then, but I still think there's obviously a lot more that we can do. And it would be interesting to know, I guess, if there are any specific interventions that can be developed to ensure that Muslim women have the opportunity to be able to participate in sports. You know, like, obviously, lack of role models is something that we've spoken about. Yeah. Lack of facilities as well, which is, is key. You know, if you haven't got the, the changing space or, or, the, or the equipment or the dress to, mm. to be able to participate, that's obviously a massive barrier to entry. How do you think we can go about making more change and creating, I guess, m- importantly, a more inclusive environment in sports? Firstly, I've noticed that there's some facilities that say
1: women only and then you turn up and the lifeguard is a, a male, for example. <laughs> I don't um, get it. Like, I don't get it, right? <laughs> I feel like we need to put more women in leadership positions as well as mm-hmm. in, in, co- in terms of coaches, referees, people who do table because that allows certain girls to be able to play
0: in environments where there's no men. I guess what you're saying yeah. is that it's not about changing everything but it's about making it more inclusive. Maybe it's just that you are able to... So, swimming, for example, you, you are more inclusive in that between the hours of X and Y, you you make it a female-only environment. And that's not asking you to change the whole schedule, yeah. you know. It'll be the same... I think they have the same for, like, kids. Like, there's an there's an hour that's allocated to kids going mm-hmm. in and having their time, you know. Everyone should be allowed to be included. So, it's not that you're sort of asking to make a huge disruption to anything. But I think what you're asking for is a basic right of, this is what, what we need, and this is how you're able to include us more. Because when I... When I go
1: to Sudan and when I play with one of my teams that I play with, it's women only. It's literally like as soon as I walk into that door, there's no men. I don't wear my hijab. I wear basketball shorts and a t-shirt and I enjoy it. But I can't do that all the time because Mm. sometimes the coaches are men and I can't do that in a male Mm. environment. Mm. But then at the same time, I don't want to say that's the only way we're going to do it because I feel like Dads should be able to come and watch their daughters as well, and they mm, can be part of her life. Support it, yeah, like so your dad did. exactly. Yeah. yeah, of course. So it's just about finding the balance and
0: asking the Musta Moon, what would you like? Mm. I suppose, and and having the choice, and having the choice. Yeah, of course. You spent some time in Tanzania, which is amazing. I was reading some of the stuff that you did out there, which is incredible. And you, one of the things that was part of your role was teaching basketball to young children. You've spoken about how being a female coach out there was quite interesting for the children to start with. <laughs> how did you navigate this role? and what did it teach you? So firstly when we say
1: children I mean they were taller than me.
0: (laughs) Oh really (laughs) they were still
1: children but they were like way taller than me so I turned up on the first day and I was like hi (laughs) I'm your coach but it was really really interesting for me to to coach that because firstly they I don't think a lot of them had seen a female basketball coach and They used to always challenge me and sort of be like, oh, let's see if you can make the shot. And I'll be like, come on, I can, of course I (laughs) I can can make
0: the shot. Yeah,
1: but what I instilled in my kids was team from day one. And I I was just sort of always telling them, you know, I want you all to come on time. And some of them lived in dorms. So I used to tell them like, I want you to pass by each other and make sure you all come on time together Mm. because if one of you is late, you're all going to run as a team. Mm-hmm. Um, so if it's one minute late, you're running two laps. If it's two, it's two, you know. Oh and I told them as well, like, look, I'm your friend, but I'm also your coach. Mm-hmm. So we need to all respect each other. And within that community, there were a lot of issues around young girls and women and sort of there was a lot of gender inequality especially like in schools a lot of girls were leaving school at a very young age because they were starting their periods for example Mm. and there wasn't good sanitation Mm. to allow them to continue their studies and then some they were expected to do all the house chores as soon as they got home so it meant they weren't studying very well which affected their grades and then they were taken out of school we used to have these debates and the boys would be like oh well they're, they're not getting good grades anyway and the girls would just put their hands up and just say actually we do all the house chores like you're not expected to do that at home and then mm. I think the debates were really good because they then got to speak with each other and I remember one boy actually put his hand up and he was just like look I would do it but the problem is if I did it people would say or my mum would say or the neighbours would say like so and so helps out in the kitchen and that's not a masculine like thing a to do attached, right? yeah, but it was very interesting to see how my presence in that environment suddenly got the young girls speaking to me more about their dreams and their goals and like different things and the boys also were just like oh we really respect you like up until now some of them still like stay in contact and they still message me every now and then like hey coach how are you and I'm just like I'm good (laughs) that's so nice
0: we'll be back after this Welcome back to Give Me Strength. I do think it's like it's in childhood where your relationship with exercise is either like made or broken yeah. and I know for me I was never good at any sports when I was growing up so I just automatically assumed that I was rubbish yeah. and that I just there wasn't a place <laughs> for me there so I'd go to the gym but I'd sit on my phone the entire time when I was at school obviously you're an amazing sports style basketball coach and player but you also have many more strings to your bow you are a spoken word poet and you won the Leeds BBC One Extra and Roundhouse Words First competition which is incredible um you've You've also done a TEDx talk which was titled Finding a Voice in Words I Couldn't Spell which I've listened to and is amazing. Can you tell me a bit more about this passion and quite literally how you found your voice? So I started writing really
1: young like for some reason I had this constant throughout my whole entire life which was writing poetry. Mm-hmm. I felt like it was literally the only thing that I could do that didn't require me to follow a set rule. So If I want to put a dot in the middle of my poem, I can put a full stop in the middle of my poem. If I just want to stop at a sentence that doesn't make sense, I can do that because it's a poem. Mm -hmm. And I really, really enjoyed the play of words and the way you could... For example, it's a chair, but you never say the word chair. You just describe the surroundings of this chair and how it makes someone feel when they sit on it Mm -hmm. and, like, why it's so comforting and everything. And then people use their own imagination and come to the conclusion that that she's talking about a chair. Mm -hmm. And I absolutely love that. Mm -hmm. And so I just kept writing and writing and when I was doing my like masters and my undergrad in photography like sometimes poetry came up and it would be at the beginning of my images or at the end or sometimes on top and it wasn't all the time but it was there and as soon as I finished like my masters I took some time out and I just wanted to explore poetry on its by itself I wanted to see what it felt like to stand in front of an audience Mm. and just say it as like a pure art form, if that makes sense. As soon as I did it and made that decision, within like three months, I'd won this competition. And I was suddenly like, what? And again, it was someone who told me, look, your approach is great. You need to believe in yourself, mm-hmm.
0: enter this competition. And I just did it. Like, I didn't think twice... Because that takes it, a lot of confidence. Like yeah. to, even to to think about that now fills me with butterflies. Like standing on a stage and just like reciting something. At times, I actually mess up on stage mm-hmm. because
1: I'm dyslexic and it's hard to retain that much information. Mm-hmm. And especially when it's like back to back poems or mm-hmm. or stuff. And sometimes it's like if I'm doing a poem and a slight movement in the audience can shift my like focus and if it does that the poem's gone like yeah. I've got to literally be like come back come oh back. oh my god that's terrifying <laughs> yeah it's, it's, it is but I've just learned that like if I don't stand on the stage and perform and mess up people are going to think that people need to be perfect all the time yeah and they're not and the whole point of me doing the poetry was to find a voice and mm. to say the things that I've always wanted to say and mm. I've been able to do that with my poetry like I've been able to speak about masculinity and gender and like so many different issues and I'm just grateful for poetry for like
0: allowing me to do that yeah of course and within one of your poems one of one of my favorites and I think you did this with BBC3 you said that you felt you needed to be masculine in order to be strong and like that really resonated with me because I know when I first started out in my head I I had this really warped version of what strong meant and it meant a physical strength it meant Mm. like a a really masculine muscular look so it really resonated with me I'd love to hear how you kind of came came to that what what was the kind of thoughts around that and then how you acknowledged this mindset and overcame it because I know that I I feel like I've overcome mine I feel like I now have a very much more grounded view of what what strong means to Mm. me but to you how did you overcome that? So with me, I I tend to write my thoughts down. Mm
1: -hmm. So there was actually a poem before that that was celebrating the fact that I'm so... I don't even know, like, not heartless, but I don't show emotions. Mm -hmm. Like, it was like, I don't show emotions because I want to be strong. Mm -hmm. And I think there was a verse in the poem that was literally, let me try and remember it, it was something like... Even when I put on a dress, I see the strength of a man in the mirror. Okay. And at the time, I genuinely thought like, yeah, strength of a man is like the ultimate epiphany of being strong because Mm -hmm. they didn't show emotions, they didn't show weakness, they didn't show all these things. And then, so that happened and I was really enjoying it and then enjoying being that kind of person. And Mm -hmm. I think a while later, I got to know someone who I believe was very narcissistic. And through my conversations with him, he kind of expressed this idea that, you know, like pride was a big part of what a man was. So this person that I met suddenly made me look at masculinity in a completely different way, in the sense that everything that I thought was strong was actually toxic masculinity. And it was exactly the same thing that society was telling boys from a very young age not to do. So not to cry, not to show emotions, to appear almost like they can have any girl that they want to They've just have. got this armour yeah. around them, yeah. And, yeah, and they're mm. invincible. Mm. And then all of a sudden, he said something and he was just sort of like, a man without his pride is like not a man. Mm. And I took that away and I just wrote, trying to figure out why I felt so strongly about men expressing themselves and Mm. why i felt like it was needed a lot in our society and a lot Mm. of that was because the first time i saw my dad cry it was because his brother passed away then i wrote a piece around it and it was about how like he choked on these verses um we have this verse in in the quran which basically says every soul shall taste death Mm. and my dad was reading it while he was like leading us in prayer and he sort of he read half of it and he choked up Mm. and then he went back and then he read it again. Mm. Then my uncles, who are very similar to him from my mom's side, they're strong. They like they walk into a room and you are like, wow, he's so amazing. He mm. looks. Re-. They cry in front of me. Mm. They hug me. Mm. They like laugh with me. Mm. They're so expressive in their emotions. And it suddenly occurred to me that like, wow, I actually have very great role models mm. who do show that you can actually find a great balance Mm. between showing your emotions Mm. and being a man. Mm. And now I really respect men who are able to express themselves. Of course. And I
0: feel like we need more of that. And I think your poems are doing amazing (laughs) things in trying to encourage that. And particularly that one, which I will definitely share with people. Brands like Nike massive brands now mainstream brands are making things like performance hijabs and making more inclusive clothing for muslim women you've most recently been made an adidas ambassador which by the way is incredible so (laughs) congratulations you You are head to toe today and you look amazing (laughs) um what does this kind of role mean to you what do you think it can bring to your career
1: i think firstly visibility because i'm being shown on platforms that i wouldn't have been shown on before Two, it gives me the feeling that everything that I've done wasn't a waste of time. I remember there was times where I just wanted to stop social media and stop the sports and stop all these things because I was just like, it's not going anywhere. Like, I'm not planning to play professionally. I'm not that great yet. And it's going to require so much effort from me. And like that's another thing that we completely forget about. There's so much inequality mm. uh, in terms of like pay for women compared to men in, in terms of sports. Mm. And a lot of us as women, we can't maintain a job and, and playing sports because your job takes over. Of You've course. got to pay your bills and stuff. So there's been times where I've had to minimise the amount of times that I'm training literally so that I can work because training doesn't pay <laughs> and you need to eat and you need yeah. to live um, yeah yeah so for me it, it's just great because suddenly i can now reach the girls mm. who might not look like me mm-hmm. as well mm-hmm. it's not always about seeing people that look like us it's sometimes just seeing different kinds of girls
0: out there yeah and, and acknowledging, just diversity yeah. which is key so obviously you've achieved so many things i'm amazed by you but what is next for you what have you got on the cards I want to work more on visual content Mm -hmm. for my poems. Mm -hmm. I
1: want to do my own images again. I want to take time to basically create work about the things that I believe in rather Mm -hmm. than work being created about me Mm -hmm. and my story being told. Mm -hmm. So I'm looking forward to sort of just getting back into the studio Mm -hmm. and creating work for an exhibition. Or something that I can just showcase to the world. Because I think a lot of people do just know me for the sports Mm. and the poetry mostly. But my passion in storytelling
0: still lies in the visual arts. Yeah, of course. You just said there that you're touching on mental health and with eating disorders. Are those things that have personally affected you?
1: Yeah, Mm. both of them actually. Mm. Uh, I feel like... I've had different stages in my life where I felt really, really low. I've had anxiety and depression. Mm. Do you know what? I'm, I'm going to say this because I don't talk about it enough, but I have PMDD and not a lot of people know what PMDD is. It's basically like, this is how they explain it on online, but it's like PMS on steroids. Okay. So, <laughs> it's like, instead of having three days of PMS, it's mm. two weeks. And some of the symptoms are very, very extreme in in the sense that Mm -hmm. there's suicide, Mm idealisation, there's extreme depression and anxiety and lack of sleep, all these different things. And I've had that since I was about 14. So I sometimes have amazing months where it doesn't affect me at all. Mm -hmm. And that's just because I'm completely active and I'm good with my food and everything. But then there's times where it really gets me and it really brings me down so I felt like it was really important for me to sort of express the depression or the anxiety that comes out of the PMDD and also the eating disorder I feel like comes from the fact that I can't control the PMDD because it's everywhere and for me I don't I don't binge and I don't I don't do it to be thin all I do is literally restrict But when you look at it, it's almost like a self-harm method. Mm. So it's like, I'll just get really stressed out and then I won't eat. Mm. Or I'll get upset with myself for not being perfect Mm. and not eat. Mm. And it was only till about six, seven months ago that I realised why I was doing all of this. Mm. And I actually stopped playing basketball for a good three months. Like I've Mm. just started going back to basketball two weeks ago. Wow. Because I was at 46 kg Mm. most of the past two years mm-hmm. and I was going to the trainings and everything but I was so dizzy like mm-hmm. most of my trainings and I just felt like I need to take time out I went to Sudan I drank so much milk
0: <laughs> <laughs> literally like but so I was going to say it must yeah. have really like that kind of condition creates massive a massive sense of lack of control yeah and obviously you've highlighted there that the control then came from the food but I guess in a sacrifice to, you'd lost your passion for your sport yeah in a way uh, for two years it sounds yeah. like and how did you deal with that with that kind of relationship where you really wanted to play basketball but actually at the same time you're like you've got all of these things going on both mentally and physically that are affecting you mm. you know that must have been a really difficult path to navigate I,
1: I mean, would play when I could mm.
0: and I would train
1: when I could When I could, literally. Mm. Sometimes I'd go by myself. I'd just go to the park and play by myself because it was less tiring than standing in front of a coach who did... Not that they don't care because they obviously do care. Mm. But at the end of the day, it's a training. Mm. So they're going to try and push you as much as they think you can be pushed. But only you know, like, okay, I can't do any more. And sometimes you don't want to be the one who's just going to sit down in the middle Mm. of the session. So you just just not turn up Mm. sometimes Mm. or do turn up so my training's been literally like on off on Mm. off for like two years and now now I'm back because I feel like I'm at stable stable weight but something that really really helped me was actually writing a short play about it Mm. I wrote this short play that it's actually called it's called number four because that's the number that I play with Mm. but it's these three girls that meet in the changing room and everything happens in this changing room and they have all these conversations and one of the girls has an eating disorder and it just goes unnoticed and another girl has, like, an identity issue because she feels like she doesn't, she belongs in England but she also doesn't quite fit in and all this kind of stuff and the girl reveals why she's had an eating disorder at the end of, like, the play, if that yeah, makes sense. Yeah. And just writing that play and i worked with a woman called alex um on it like with freedom studios in bradford mm. and i think we took six months to write it and the fact that i sat down and talked to her every now and again about it mm. and was able to put it on paper really cathartic yeah it was so mm. good and mm. then seeing
0: the girls like act it out in front of me was just amazing wow that's really powerful yeah and I was going to say, who, who who were the people that sort of helped you through, I guess, what was quite a dark time in your life? Who were the people that really pulled you through? I, I know family's been quite important to you. You've spoken about your dad being a massive support. Yeah. Were they very, very helpful in, in, I guess, noticing that there was clearly an issue and then helping you through that? Yeah, I think
1: my parents understood to a certain extent and then didn't understand because they're not going through it. My mum just tried to make me... Eat. <laughs> Like all the time. She's just like, please eat, please eat, please eat. And then I think that I had to sort of create some boundaries within the household as well, where I told my parents, look, please don't talk to me about food. Um, if you make food, put it in the kitchen and just let me know there's food that's been made, but don't ask me to come and eat, because that's another form of, like, control that I just... I'm just like, why are you trying to control my eating? Mm. And <laughs> so... I ask them to just to do that but also my friends like I've got friends who now understand like if I'm sitting with them all and they're not hungry and I'm hungry and I suddenly say like I really need to eat now they will go with me even if they're not going to eat but Mm. they'll go with me and they'll sit and I'll have my food Mm. and my cousin when I was in Sudan like she was such a huge help like she on the days I couldn't make food she made it and made sure that there was something in the house always eat yeah and it seems really like such a normal thing to be able to do to get up and make food but with the PMDD it's almost like you go through this mind block Mm -hmm. where everything from like brushing your teeth to going to work becomes so difficult and I have I have a friend who she has like this thing that she describes it by so she Mm -hmm. sort of she says like oh I only have 10 spoons today and like these spoons for example like it's going to take me three spoons to brush my teeth and then it's going to take me four to go down the road and post something and then I've only got whatever amount of spoons left and I don't know if I can do all these other things Mm -hmm. that I need to do because Mm -hmm. there's they all require so many spoons, mm, and I've only course. got a few. Lifts. Yeah. yeah, and I feel like I'm in a comfortable place with it, mm. but that's because I speak about it. Yeah,
0: yeah, and you've and you've I guess done amazing things in terms of creating plays, poetry that's able to not only get stuff out for yourself, but then to help others and raise awareness. Yeah, what does strength look like to you? Strength looks like for me
1: is. Doing the best that you can do at that particular time. So, if I can be a good friend right now and I have the energy to like go on trips with my friends or visit my friends all the time, that's great. If I don't have
0: the strength to do that, it's fine. Mm. I don't have to be hard on myself. We used to have um we used to have this saying on the show when I was in musicals, and it used to be, I'm just going to give 100% of what I've got right now. Yeah, you know, so 100% could be actually you know, a three out of ten. But yeah. it was a hundred percent of what of the energy that I had because it was it like, you know, life can be exhausting, mm. work can be exhausting. So sometimes just giving a hundred percent of what you've got yeah. is is all you've got. You can't expect
1: everyone to for example, I have a small platform that I speak on and I'm I'm comfortable speaking about lots of different mm. issues. But there's some issues that I don't feel comfortable speaking about. Yeah. But i can't then tell everyone else that like you all have voices as well so like use mm-hmm. them yeah. you're like i'm just a normal human being yeah. who just started doing a bit of
0: social media and it i think grew. the thing with social media is it's such a you have to give so much energy yeah you know, you're constantly giving and if you haven't actually got that much energy to give exactly. it can be really exhausting yeah. and like, i've definitely experienced that at times where i've been feeling pretty low I don't have any more to give yeah. to people. You know, it's not that I'm it's not that I'm being rude or it's not that I'm like sort of very up myself in that I'm like, mm. oh I've got this massive platform and I'm yeah, yeah. you know, don't speak to me. It's just sometimes you're you're really exhausted, both physically, mentally, emotionally, and you don't have much else to give. Mm. So it's that gentle reminder of guys, I don't want
1: to force you to speak about things you're not comfortable speaking mm-hmm. about. But at the same time, I want to remind you that actually you also have a voice. Yeah. Like sometimes someone who has 50 followers will have a bigger impact than someone who has a million because absolutely, on the ground, they're actually
0: out and doing things. Yeah, absolutely. My last question for you is, who in your life demonstrates strength? I think my mum.
1: And it's such a cliche to say mum, but think oh, they going to get emotional. Oh. <laughs> I feel like my mum was such a strong personality in my life to the point where at times she's actually told me, Asma, I think you're a stronger version of me. And she worries for me because I'm like her, but ten times more in the sense that I'm more vocal. I don't care about rules. I will do the things that are not expected from people who look like me but I've seen her teach which is such a normal thing you know we see teachers all the time but she did it in a way that always left me happy Mm -hmm. and I would learn from her and sometimes I'd learn from her without her even saying anything and from such a young age my mom literally would she made me feel like my voice was valued even
0: if I was a 10 year old Can I just say, you spoke earlier about your your teaching in Tanzania and whether you realise it or not, you've clearly picked up some of your mum's tendencies because it sounds like you were the most amazing teacher. And I want to be taught by you (laughs) to play basketball. So whether you realise or not, she's definitely imparted some of her incredible qualities onto you. Asma, you have been... The most amazing guest. I honestly cannot thank you enough. I've learned so much, and I am so excited to watch you grow over the next few years. I think there's a lot destined for you. Thank you again, and I don't think this is the last we'll be hearing from you. Thank you so much for having me (laughs) on. It's my pleasure. We all know how much powerful quotes can inspire us, so I've selected some of my favourite quotes from women who've inspired me to be your daily mantra through to the next episode. This week's is from the incredible Serena Williams, who says, The success of every woman should be the inspiration to another. We should raise each other up, make sure you're very strong, be extremely kind, and above all, be humble. Thank you so much for tuning in to Give Me Strength. Please do join us next week for more incredible guests. In the meantime, I would love it if you could take a moment to rate and review this podcast. And don't forget to subscribe if you want to be the first to listen to our brand new episode every Wednesday.